going to do this morning is a little bit different than a normal message. I'm not just going to speak on one passage. I'm going to use several different passages to talk about the important biblical truth of justification. And uh, so that's one way that the message is going to be unique, because it's not just going to be over one passage. The other thing that's going to be unique is that I'm going to use the lens of church history in order to do this. My day job, my calling right now, is to teach theology and church history. Uh, that's, that's what I do, what I plan on doing in Zambia. And, and so I was a pastor for many years before that. And one of the things that just is interesting, going from being a pastor to now, to now teaching, that's a, it's an interesting switch, fun switch, good switch in many ways, though I, I certainly miss pastoral ministry. But one of the things that teaching church history has helped me see is that even though we want to base everything we believe on the Bible, which, which of course we do, right? We want to base everything we believe on Scripture. Even though that's, that's what we want to do, we, it's also true that we can't but help reading that Bible with a community of believers, a church, but also a community of believers, many of whom have already beat us to heaven. We can't help doing that. It's just not God's plan for us to reinvent every major Bible doctrine, every generation. But we just can't do that even if we wanted to. We depend upon the saints who've gone before us to help us understand biblical truths. Of course, we're still responsible for what we believe on our own. We still must test everything. But it's God's plan for the church to depend upon those who come before, not reinvent the wheel every generation. That's just part of what it means for us to be a church that is united, it's also what it means for us to grow and mature. You know, a more mature person depends upon those who are older and wiser, right? And we must depend upon the saints who come before us. It doesn't absolve us for responsibility to examine Scripture on our own, but it's just the mature and wise thing to do. So I want to talk about the theme of justification through the lens of what we call the Protestant Reformation. We date the beginning of the Protestant Reformation to October 31st, 1517, so just over 500 years ago. And we call it the Protestant Reformation because it's when the monk Martin Luther protested things that were going on in the church, teaching that was happening in the church, mostly related to this theme of justification. So Martin Luther saw something in the Bible that his, the church at his time largely missed, and he helped lead the church into greater understanding. And there's a lot that we can learn from how he did that and what happened there. Now let me just say something about justification at the very outset here. It deals with the question, how do I get right with God? That's what justification is about. That's very important for all of us. Because one day, we will die. You will die. And you will stand before God. And in that moment, it won't matter how much money you have. Or how your kids turned out. Or whether or not you are successful in your job. Or how good you looked or your GPA. No. What will matter is whether or not, in that moment, God will accept you. And so the question, how do I get right with God... So the question related to justification is an important one. Uh, but there's a complication to the question that we need to recognize at the outset. And that is that we have not honored God as we should have. We have done what we want rather than what God wants. The Bible calls this sin. And the way sin works is that even when sin is against another, another person, which it is, it's ultimately against God. That's because God created us to know Him and to worship Him. We're made in His image. So everything we do relates first and foremost to Him. And so our wrongdoing puts us at odds with God. And if we are against God, God cannot help being against us. He must recoil at everything that contradicts Him. God cannot be indifferent to that which assaults him and, and tries to rob him of his glory. God can't just ignore that. So the situation is that we are against God, and God is against 
us. And so the question of justification is not just how do we get right with God, but how do we as a sinful, rebellious, morally corrupt creatures become right with God? That's the question of justification. Now, I'm going to get to what the Bible says about this, what Luther saw in the Bible about this. But as I said, I want to enter this discussion through the lens of church history. And I want to just take a few minutes here to describe what the church was teaching about justification when Martin Luther came into the scene. What did he see that he had to protest against? Now, please understand, this is not, I repeat, not what justification actually is. I don't want anybody to tune into this part of the sermon and think that I'm actually giving them true biblical truth. I'm telling you what was wrong, okay? So please, uh, please understand that. This is what the church said that was wrong. Okay. Tons of disclaimers here. The church before Luther said, let's face it, holiness is really hard, isn't it? It's a real drag. Ever heard anybody say that before? Ever thought that before? You have to be holy, of course, right? I mean, there's no way around that. But it's a lot of work. Strictly speaking, they would say, it's not impossible, but realistically, Oh, you're never going to do it. But this is where grace comes in. Again, this isn't what's true, but this is how they understood grace. Wrong. They said grace is basically supernatural energy to help you be holy. One theologian I know, Mike Reeves, likened grace to a can of Red Bull. It's the extra oomph you need if you're going to be holy. And justification, they taught, wrongly, was the process whereby we get enough grace, we get enough oomph, and then we can actually live out the holy life. But then they would say, okay, let's be realistic. Even with this grace, you are still not going to make it. That little bit condescending to the lady. Let's say you need 100 points to make it into heaven. The church would say, there are people out there who with grace could get that 100 points. But look at you, you're a mess. You're never going to make it. That's how they preach back. That's what you would get in the church with a little bit less heart. But don't worry, they would say. It's not as bad as you think. Because as long as you haven't done anything too bad, there's purgatory. And purgatory is this great place. Because you can go there and over millions of years in pain and torment, all the bad things about you will be purged away. Is it right? No. <laughs> but you're pretty messed up, so it is going to take millions of years for that to happen, just to be prepared for that. But it's, it's not still as bad as you think, because there are people who've gotten those hundred points. They are the saints, and the martyrs, and Mary, <clears throat> Jesus. And they have extra points they could share with you to speed you through purgatory. So it goes faster. And they're willing to share those points with you. But here's the thing. You have to be repentant or penitent. Because they don't want to waste those points. I mean, it took a lot of work to get those points. They don't want to waste them on you if you're not worthy of them. So to show yourself worthy, you would buy indulgences. And indulgences would show that you are worthy of those points to speed you through purgatory. That's what the church thought justification was when Martin Luther was born. And that meant that Martin Luther was born into a world with a lot of angst. He didn't smile much in this world. The paintings of people back then, the paintings of Martin Luther's father and mother, they looked pretty grumpy. That's because you lived in terror of God all the now let me just interrupt this story and make a comment about today. Now, today in the world out there, people don't live in the fear of God in that same way, right? I mean, if you were to talk about the fear of God in, in the way they did, people would probably refer you to a counselor. People don't live in conscious fear of God today. However, if you ask any counselor, biblical or otherwise, they'll tell you that one of the biggest things that people struggle with is anxiety. Well, they don't struggle with the fear of God, but they still struggle with fear. 
And that's because none of us can get away from that awareness that we will stand before God. People, and that fear stems ultimately, I believe, from the fear of death. And people don't fear death because they think it's the end. They fear death because they think it might not be the end. And they're terrified as to what will come after. And think of all the things that people will do to placate their fears. They will spend lots of money. They will do horrible things to themselves and to others. Oh, the outward form of indulgences has changed. But the inward reality of what we will do to placate our fears has not. Okay, back to our story. So here's Martin Luther, born into this world. And now, at, at Martin Luther's father's request, he went to law school. See, Martin Luther's father had been a minor his whole life, and there was some upward mobility at the time. And he saved money to send his kid to law school so that he could have a good profession for himself. That was a wonderful, sacrificial thing to do. So Martin Luther was in law school, and it was going well. But then one day, I mean, Luther is, Luther is terrified of God. One day, Luther gets caught in a thunderstorm. And he really thought he was going to die. And death terrified him because it meant standing before God in judgment. So in an act of desperation, he prays to, not God, not Jesus, but St. Anne, who was Mary's mother. So he thought. <laughs> In 21 years, he had never thought to pray to God. No, that's how much he dreads God. And he says to St. Anne, if you save me, I'll be a monk. Now, he's not trying to be pious. He's not being pious or good here. He's terrified of death, and he's trying to put it off just a little bit longer. And so he goes and you know, throws his whole law career down the drain to delay death just a little bit longer. Now... Um, now he, he becomes a monk. And you might think that as a monk, he would have he would have peace with God, right? Finally, as a monk, right, if anybody's going to be right with God, it's going to be those monks. And Luther would be happy now because he's doing the thing that is going to assure him of a right standing with God. But oh no. As a monk, without the distractions of secular study, he can give himself full time to his fears and anxieties. He's determined to get all the points. So he does things, like stand out in the cold all night just to prove he's repentant. He scrubs the floors over and over again, anything that would demonstrate repentance. One of the priests who would listen to Martin Luther confess his sins for hours said, Luther, in all these years, you've never confessed anything the least bit interesting. <laughs> Which is to say, by all external standards, he lived a morally blameless life. He found no peace. Now, there was a teacher, just a, a couple generations before Luther's time, that, that tried to develop a strand of teaching that would encourage people exactly like Luther. And this is what the, the priest said. His name was Gregory, Gregory Beale. He said, okay, we understand that none of our good works would ever be inherently acceptable before God in and of themselves, right? If we looked at those good works and tried to determine their merits objectively, would it earn God's favor? Gabriel Beale had the um, honesty to say, okay, let's, let's recognize that it doesn't. But here's what Gabriel Beale said. If you do your best, God will accept that as good enough. He will accept that as a, a meeting the standard because it's God and he can do what he wants. And he can lower the standard to not objectively perfect, but just your best. Or as you might hear today, do your best and God will do the rest. That's to take a whole lot of very dense theology and to put it in a soundbite, which is always really good to do. Or, or another way, God helps those who help themselves. That, that's Gabriel Beale's teaching, trying to encourage people who were aware of their faults and knew they would never measure up. That kind of teaching appeals to our pride, doesn't it? I mean, we know we need help, right? All of us are going to admit we need help. But we'd like to think there's something we can do to sort of get the ball rolling, right? It's, it's because we did our best that God's going to help us with the rest. 
But Luther was not helped by Gabriel's judgment. Instead, he was cast into even greater despair. Because Luther knew his heart, and he knew that he never really did his best. If he got up at 4 a.m. to pray, he knew that he could have gotten up at 3.30. He was just lazy. But even more significantly, he knew the real problem with his heart was that he did not want to obey God. He didn't want to. He didn't want to do his best. And if you don't want to do your best, it surely is not your best. I can relate to Luther here. I remember before I became a Christian, long before I heard the gospel, struggling with questions of morality. I knew there was a right and wrong. It just made sense to me. And I was the one growing up who usually managed to be able to stay out of trouble. And I remember contemplating why it was so hard for some other people to do what I thought was obviously the right thing to do. I remember concluding in what I thought at the time was a very charitable judgment that here's what it must be. It must be that everyone has different levels of how good they can be, and everyone is just trying their best. Then I thought about it a little bit more. Then I looked into my heart, and I saw what deep darkness was in my heart. I wanted to do evil. I wanted people to be hurt. And I concluded that there might be different levels, but everybody is actually doing their worst, if they were like me. And that scared me. So I did the only logical thing that made sense. I never thought about morality issues again. <laughs> That's a suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. Luther, though, was not suppressing the truth. While he's wrestling with these things, something happens that sort of rips the band-aid off of Luther. A priest comes to town by the name of John Tetzel, and he is selling indulgences. Those things that you would buy in order to uh, get out of purgatory free card, that, that, that's what the dogs would work. And you see, something else triggered John Tetzel coming to town. That was the, uh, the Turks. This is why church history is so interesting. The, the spiritual and physical things just sort of come together. The, the Turks, the Ottoman Empire, was invading the, the Germanic Empire. And they needed to raise money. So how do they do that? By selling an indulgence. And John Tetzel comes to town with this once-in-a-lifetime indulgence. It's like those super low interest rates that were there for a little while. It'll never happen again in your lifetime. Here, here's the, the, the 2.5 indulgence, uh, percentage indulgence. It is if you buy this indulgence, no matter what you did, even John Tetzel would say, if you rape the very mother of God, you'll get out of purgatory for free. That's what he was saying. All of your sins will be completely forgiven if you buy this very expensive indulgence. And, and Tetzel would go around saying, when the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. <laughs> I don't know what the original German was, but I think it rhymed just as well as, as our English does. <laughs> now you might think this is exactly what Luther wants, right? This is the get out of purgatory free card. Buy this indulgence, Luther, and you never have to worry about anything again. You can go back to law school. Who cares, right? Except Luther knew too much about his own sinful heart, and he knew the holiness of God, and he knew that he could never buy God off that sheeple. Whatever would overcome the evil in his heart must be something that was far more costly than that indulgence. So, in response to these indulgences, Luther, on October 31st, 1517, nailed to the castle door, the, the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, 95 issues, or we call them theses, that he had with indulgences that he wanted to make. Now this is actually contrary to how it looks in posters. There were always a lot of things on that door, and this was the normal way that you would initiate an academic debate. That's what he wanted. He wanted an academic debate. Well, somebody took them off the door, printed them, and sent them out to everybody else, unbeknownst to Luther, which is why one of the reasons that this thing only took off. But anyway, um, Luther, in those in that 95 theses, really, and it's pretty clear, he did not understand the gospel. They were very um, uh, Romanish, as he would call them. He, he didn't understand the gospel at the time that he wrote those. But see, what happened was this domino effect. After Luther published those 95 theses, the Pope sent people to Wittenberg to debate Luther. And one guy in particular who debated Luther was a man named John Eck. And Eck pressed Luther on the question, how do you know? 
How do you know, Luther, that all these years of church teaching is wrong? Which is actually a lie. The church hadn't been teaching for that long. The church had been teaching something much more closer than Luther was teaching. But nevertheless, the question still stood. Luther, how do you know? And this forced Luther to be more self-conscious about his, his uh, epistemological foundations. How, what did he rest on for knowledge? And he came to understand that the only way to justify his position doctrine was by going back to the Bible. And this forced him to read the Bible in a new light. In one of these debates, he famously said, my conscience is held captive to the Word of God. And so when he looked at the Bible with this new awareness that this really is the standard for, for all faith and practice, he led, it led him to realize some new things about justification. Listen to how Luther describes this paradigm shift that went on in his thinking. This little quote that I'll read you is from his introduction to the New Testament, written in, in, um, in, in 1545. But he's talking about a transition that happened in his life much earlier. This is what he wrote. He said, though I lived as a monk without reproach, that means he lived an outwardly blameless life, I felt I was a sinner before God. I could not believe that God was pleased by my works. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, I wished there was no God. This is Luther as a monk. A key word there for Luther is righteousness. Whenever he encountered that word righteousness in the Bible, he would shudder in fear because he thought it meant the righteousness that God had and he didn't, and therefore was the grounds for God to punish him. Luther's secret goal, that he never confessed to his confessor, was that he wanted to buy God off with his good works, so that he could have heaven for himself and not have God around to spoil him. He wanted to escape God's wrath but not just escape God's wrath. He wanted to escape God. And this caused a vicious circle. The more he dreaded God, the more he hated God. Because don't we often hate what we dread? And the more he hated God, the more he realized he was guilty. Because after all, doesn't the scripture call us to love God as the first great commandment? And the more he realized he was guilty, the more he dreaded God. And so on and so forth was this vicious circle spiraling Luther downward and downward into the darkest pits of despair. But, Luther continues, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of those words. He means the context of the word righteousness as it appears in Scripture. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely faith. Here's Luther's discovery. Notice the importance of Scripture. He gave heed to the context. He looked at the Bible in its context. It was a right and hermeneutical approach to God's Word that changed his life. Luther's discovery was that the righteousness in the New Testament, the word righteousness in the New Testament, isn't the righteousness of God over and against the sinful man. Righteousness isn't just what God has and we don't, so he'll suck us. Righteousness is the righteousness of God that is given as a gift to believers by faith so that they are accounted righteous. So they stand before God as righteous. That is the righteousness of God in the Bible. And Luther saw this most particularly in the book of Romans. And let me just take you briefly, if you have your Bibles, look into the book of Romans. I'll take you through Luther's Romans Road. <laughs> this is Luther's Romans Road. It's how he saw the Bible unfold for him. The first thing he saw was in uh, Romans 1, chapter 17. Paul has just said in Romans 16 that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Salvation is obviously a good thing. It means deliverance. Then Paul explains why he's not ashamed of the gospel. 
What is it about the Gospel that makes it something that he's not ashamed of? And he writes there, for in the Gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For it is written, the just shall live by faith. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation because the Gospel, the, because, because of the Gospel, the righteousness of God comes to us apart from the law but by faith. Now, it took a little while for Luther to realize what this meant. For years, the, the church in Luther's day taught, oh yeah, you're justified by faith. That's what they would say. Of course you're justified by faith. The Bible says you're justified by faith. How could they do on that? But they would redefine it. Faith was not your trust in the gospel. Faith justified you because faith produced good works. And by those good works, you were justified. See what they did there? But then Luther gave heed to the context. And he realized that that's not what the Bible's saying. It says you're justified by faith. Period. Full stop. Faith obviously does cause good works. It's not entirely untrue. Most errors have a bit of truth in them. Yes, faith does cause good works. And those works are part of uh, are, are the total package deal of salvation that God gives us. But Luther realized that what Paul meant by faith here was not faith in the active sense, as it is an engine that produces good works, but what Paul meant here was faith in the passive sense, which was pretty much ignored by the church at the time. The passive sense in which faith rests in the gospel out of the sense that we don't have those good works in ourselves, so we cling to Christ as our only hope. That's the faith by which we are justified. Now the question then comes, how can God give us faith as a gift, have, uh, or sorry, give us righteousness as a gift like that? And then Luther would turn to Romans chapter 3. Look there at verse, chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justified of the one who has faith in Christ. Now, this is a very important passage. and it's, it's one, too, that needs a bit of untangling, and we don't have time to work through all of that today. But you can see how in God's providence it was Luther trained as a lawyer was able to help unravel this because this is a, it's a complicated legal argument that Paul is making here. And the question that Paul is wrestling with in the passage I just said is how it is that justification can be by faith and God still be righteous. How can God justify people who are sinners? How can God do that? and still be righteous as a righteous God, as a righteous judge? How can God forgive sin and be just at the same time? And the answer that Luther heard and rejected was that God declares people just because He actually makes them just. He was like, no, that's not what these words are saying. The thing that destroyed that argument for Luther was Romans chapter 4, verse 5, which has the phrase, God justifies the ungodly. If that's true, and it is, that God justifies the ungodly, then justification cannot be a process where these people slowly over time become righteous. They're ungodly when they're justified. So that just raises the stakes even more. How does God, as a just judge, justify, that is, declare righteous and accept people who are ungodly, people who are sinful. The answer that Luther saw and Paul gives is only on the basis 
of Christ and His offering that He died on the cross to receive the punishment for what we've done wrong. And God gives us the righteousness of Christ as if it were our own. God has a just reason to forgive our sins and declare us righteous, and that is that Christ has died and truly taken the penalty that our sins deserve. The wages of sin is death. We deserve not, but Christ took that death for us. Christ, without having any sin, did not deserve to die. Why then did He die? He died because He took our sin, the penalty for our sin upon Himself. If we've trusted in Christ and been forgiven of our sins for Christ's sake, then God cannot condemn us anymore. You see, without Christ's death for us, there would be no way that God could accept us to Himself. It would be unjust. It would violate the very character of God which is justice. It would violate the standard of His perfect righteousness. But with Christ's death, for all those who believe in Christ, there is no way that God can not forgive us and accept us. Because it would be a violation of His justice if He did not accept all those whose sin Christ has truly taken away. And finally, one more verse to point to in, Roman, in um, Luther's Romans Road, and that is Romans uh, chapter 5, verse 1. And I like to translate it this way, which is entirely defensible in the Greek. I like to translate it this way. After being justified by faith, we have peace with God. After being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, I like that because it stresses that justification happens at a point in time. And then after justification, we have peace with God. Luther loved this verse too. And, and the thing is, that if Luther was preaching he, up here in this pulpit, you, you would love it. But he would make the folks who own this pulpit mad because he would probably etch into this pulpit, because it's a wooden surface, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. That's what he did. He did it to his dining room table. He did it to all the tables that he had access to. He would take his knife and edge it. So if you have Luther over for dinner and you left and you had a wooden table, you would realize that it had a Bible verse etched into it. That's what he did. He loved this verse because he needed to keep God's Word always before him. And he needed to keep this truth always before him. After being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And see, this answered Luther's lifelong dilemma. How is it that he gets peace with God? Answer, justification by faith. The free righteousness that is given to him as a gift because of faith. The free pardon that he is given of his sins as a gift by faith. After that, after that one-time transaction whereby God takes away his sin and gives him Christ's righteousness, he has peace with God. This is unique to Christianity. As many of you know, I, I lived in Turkey for a while, and one of the things I used to do there, I used to like to do, was to pop into the Islamic bookstore from time to time and, and just sort of peruse what, what the, it was saying. And, and it was one thing to read the theology books, but I also thought it was quite interesting to go over to the, not Christian living, but Muslim living, kind of the practical books, like, okay, let's see how they actually tell you to live based upon this truth. And it was interesting that uh, I was, remember reading in one book there that said basically this. It said, true, you don't know if you're going to make it to heaven or not. You can't know that. But good works make it more likely, and bad works make it less likely, so you'd be stupid not to do as many good works as you possibly can. And when I read that, I thought, what a horrible way to live. You would have no peace. But sometimes Christians live that way too. I've taught on Romans 5.1 before, and I've gotten pushback from Christians because they come up and tell me, I don't want peace with God. I want to fear His wrath so that I work harder. I'm afraid I won't try to be holy anymore if I don't have God's wrath hanging over me. To which I want to say in all love and tenderness, if your holiness, in that quote, is spurred on by God's wrath, then it's really not holy. It's not. Because true holiness 
is born out of love for God, not dread of God. The only way to have real holiness is to have peace with God. And the only way to have peace with God is through justification. So when Luther saw that, he said, at the, the close of that section in the introduction to the New Testament, he said, here I felt as though I was altogether born again. A whole new life. But see, the, the very best thing about this life, and I love this part of Luther's story, the very best thing Luther got was not simply the assurance they didn't have to fear God's judgment anymore. That was not the main thing that he got from this understanding. The main thing he got was a compassionate and loving God. He got God. He got a God who he wanted to be in a relationship with because he realized God wanted to be in a relationship with him. Remember, at first, Luther wanted a way to escape God's wrath and then not have God around to spoil all the fun. And if we're honest with ourselves, Maybe that's what we were after in our soul. But then Luther found out that the way to escape God's wrath was through the Son of God who God said to freely die on the cross to forgive his sin. And when he realized that that is who God is, the God who justifies the ungodly, this is who God is, he found God to be altogether adorable, meaning he adored God. He loved God. If this is who God is, Luther thought, why in the world was I trying to buy heaven and then enjoy it without God? If this is who God is, I want this God. I want more of Him. In fact, if God is not there, then heaven is not heaven. The best thing about justification was not the free pass into heaven as wonderful as that was. The best thing about justification was it was now a window through which you would see the very heart of and this set Luther on a quest to understand more of the love of God. He found that God's love is radically different than human love. He said this, and listen very carefully because there's a lot of theology in here. I'm getting close to the end of my point. He said, the love of God does not find what is pleasing to it, but creates what is pleasing to it. The love of God does not find what is pleasing to it, but creates what is pleasing to it. Here, here's what that means. Normally, we love that which we find intrinsically pleasing, right? Remember, first being drawn to my wife because of her kindness. Right? That, that which was pleasing to me drew me. But with God, it's different. He is not drawn to us because of our kindness. Certainly not. He is not drawn to us because of anything in us that would commend us to him as a worthy object of his love. In fact, everything in us repulses him. Remember, we, we are against God. God is against us. But in his wonderful grace, he also loves us. Why? Simply because he chooses to. There's no explanation for it. Other than it pleases him to do so. It pleases him for reasons that are wholly explained by him, not by us. At one point, the Bible basically says he loves us because he loves us. And then this love, God's love, actually creates in us what is pleasing to him. Luther put it this way. Sinners are not loved because they're attractive. They're attractive because they're loved. His love lavished on us creates in it things that really are pleasing to God. We don't do anything to earn God's favor, earn His love. But when we have His love, we do things that really do please Him. So now Luther basically asked the question, okay, with this new understanding of justification by faith, how then do I live? Again, we can talk about the theology, but when it gets down to, what do I actually do based upon this truth? And, and here's the answer that Luther gave. We live as one who is sinful and righteous at the same time. Luther coined this phrase in Latin. Simultus gustus et peccator. Simultaneously righteous and sinful. Luther thought that was the best way to describe the Christian life. And I think he's right. As a Christian, we are sinful. Because remember, God justifies the what? The righteous people? No, he justifies the ungodly. 
And even though we do change and we do actually become more righteous over time, never is that righteousness to the point where it merits in God's faith. We are always sinful. We are also righteous. Because we really do have Christ's righteousness given to us as a gift. We really do now deserve a reward. Not on account of us, but on account of Christ. So we are sinful and righteous at the same time. Luther gave an illustration of how this works. He said, imagine a king. Relate someone to the last message I Imagine a king, a great, noble king, marries a prostitute. It would be an extraordinary act, wouldn't it? You could imagine a king pardoning a prostitute or helping a prostitute like marriage. But that's kind of the situation the Bible describes. Read the book of Hosea. Read Ezekiel 16. Who's the prostitute? Luther would go around and say, I'm nothing but Gomer. That's the prostitute in Hosea. We are sinful. But the great and noble king marries her, and he says, all that I have, I give to you. And all that you have that is ugly and broken, I take to myself and do away with it. If, if a king marries a prostitute in that moment, the girl becomes what? The queen. That's who she is legally. That's her status. I consider this. She doesn't act like the king or the queen very much. She doesn't have all. She doesn't think like the queen. And 99% of the time, she does not feel like the queen. Her status is queen. Though her outward behavior and her feelings and her actions haven't caught up there yet. Luther is saying that's what it's like to be sinful and righteous at the same time. We're the prostitute. And Jesus speaks to us and says, All your sin is mine. I bore it for you. And all my righteousness is yours. It is a gift for you. I am yours. You are mine. Our status then is God's holy and beloved children. The bride of Christ. This is who we are. But outwardly, we haven't caught up quite yet. We've not yet conformed to the radiant, spotless bride. Living with both of these realities in view simultaneously is counterintuitive and countercultural and just frankly hard. A couple of years ago, I went to a conference for the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And when I came home, I had gotten a shirt from that conference, and the shirt said, guess what? Sinful and righteous at the same time. And uh, my family picked me up, and my daughter went with me, and picked uh, us up from the airport, and then our family went out to eat. And so I went into five guys with the shirt that said sinful and righteous at the same time. And to be honest with you, it felt a little odd. It felt really comfortable wearing that shirt in the Reformation conference. But then when I walked out in the road, it's a little bit odd. Like, I'm wearing a shirt in public that says I'm sinful. That's a bit of an odd thing to say about yourself. And yet at the same time, I'm also wearing a shirt that says I'm righteous, which is also a very odd thing to say about yourself. <laughs> if we can kind of think about it and get past the Christian ease that we often speak in, we'll find it's actually quite uncomfortable to affirm both those things about ourselves at the same time. I think we want to, we really want a shirt. I want a shirt that just says has a, like a little like scale with, with an arrow that's slightly above the 50 percentile and it says slightly above average, right? That would be much more comfortable to wear. That's how we would like to think of ourselves. I'm kind of righteous and kind of sinful. Sort of in between. But that's not what Luther meant. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that you really are that bad. I remember once trying to comfort somebody who was talking about how sinful they are, and I said something like, Relax. Don't worry. You're probably actually a whole lot more sinful than you realize. <laughs> Once they said, that's impossible. I can't be as bad as I think I am. I think I'm just of a super sensitive conscience. And afterwards, I thought, well, I probably could have actually approached that a little bit better. But also, this person doesn't get the gospel. We really are worse than we can imagine. We, we are that bad, if not, and worse. And yet, we are also more righteous than we could possibly imagine. If we trusted in Christ, we have the righteousness of Christ given to us as a gift. We are adopted into his family. We are joint heirs with Christ. We get the same inheritance he does. We get him. 
we are the bride. We are both, at least in this life, at the same time. Now, how do we work this out in our lives? What does it look like to live as one who is sinful and righteous at the same time? Here are some su suggestions. Just to prime the pump, you could go on with this list. Well, first, it means recognizing I am sinful. And as a sinner, I need to cling to the grace of God that has shown me in Christ. I need God's grace. I don't get over God's grace. I don't take God's grace and then move past that. I need His grace all the time. As a sinner, I need to be reminded that my justification is based upon Christ. And I have nothing to stand upon other than Him. That's why Luther wrote Romans 5.1 in all the wood surfaces he could find. As a sinner, I need my sin to drive me back again and again to the gospel. Daily I'm confronted with my sin, Luther said. And daily I am driven back to the gospel of free grace in Christ. Never a day goes by when I am not absolutely and in every way dependent upon God's grace. As a sinner, I need to grow in righteousness. As a sinner, I need the church to help me grow. Listen, Luther never, ever taught, there's some accused him of this, that because he's sinful, that's an excuse to remain in sin. No. Luther put a high value on confessing sin to others and trying to grow. He wanted the realization that we're sinful as a, as a way of saying, okay, we've acknowledged that. Now let's be open and honest about our sin with others so they can help us grow. As a sinner, I need to repent daily. Luther's 95 Theses that he nailed to the, the door of the church in, in Wittenberg, the very first one had this in it. It said, when the Lord and Master said repent, he willed the entire life to be one of repentance. We never get beyond God's grace, and we never get beyond repentance. Repentance is something for us every day. As a sinner, I recognize that life is a process. One of the most beautiful things, moving things that Luther wrote is, is this sentence, or a couple sentences, buried in this dense theological treatise, and it says this. This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not gleam in glory, but all is being purified. This life is process. We are sinful. But at the same time, we are righteous. And as one who is righteous, I boldly come before the throne of grace where I may find mercy and grace in time of need. I come to God with the confidence of acceptance. And I can boldly ask God for help. As one who is righteous, I claim my status as the Son of God, the Bride of Christ, and I live free, free from the fear of death and damnation. As one who is righteous, I love God who first love me. Remember, only the gospel can allow us to love God. As one who is righteous, I delight in God, not just because of what He did for me, but for who He is. He is a God who delights in justifying sinners. As one who is righteous, I believe that my future in heaven is secure. I don't have to spend time doubting and fretful. I love a line in a song that says, that in heaven we will be more happy, but not more secure. Meaning that we are secure in Christ now as we will ever be. As one who is righteous, I rejoice in that hope. I exalt in that hope. As one who is righteous, I do good to others, not so that God will accept me, but because He does. I serve others Simply to serve others, not looking to gain something back, but with the confidence that I already have all I could ever need in Christ. As one who is righteous, I don't care what others think of me. I don't care who condemns me, because God is the one who justifies me. 
Friends, our job is not to balance out sinful and righteous so that we're some kind of muted in between. Our job is to live out of both of those realities loudly. Of course, this is a lot easier said than done. Luther struggled relentlessly until the day he died. Fifteen years after he discovered the gospel, he writes this, quote, My greatest temptation is to not believe that God is gracious. One season of his life, he was so depressed, his wife started wearing all black around the house. Luther mumbled something to her about who died. And she said, well, the way you're acting, I assume God did. <laughs> that snapped him out of that depression. Luther struggled with pride and arrogance. He said some horrible things that needed to repent of. It's not as if when we believe this, all will become just fine. That's why God's word is so important. The truth of justification will not last in our hearts or our churches unless there's a commitment to God's word. Luther said that the doctrine of justification was the standing or falling of the church. If we have it, we will stand. If we miss it, we will fall. Well, I pray that you get justification, really get it, and stand. Oh Lord, we thank you for this amazing truth that we who are sinful can be accepted as righteous in your sight. Oh Lord, that is that is amazing act of creation of your Lord, we're amazed at the creation that you've made. We're amazed at how you can call something out of nothing. But Lord, the most awesome work you've done is taking sinful people who are far from you and making them your children, your, your holy bride, you, your glorious family. And Lord, we thank you for this reality. We pray that justification will not be something that we think, oh, we've got that and we move on. But Lord, we would come back to this day by day. This understanding of ourselves as sinful and righteous at the same time would be something we grow into and understand ourselves to be and conform to the implications of both of those realities. Help us with these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.